where we are here in the Sermon on the Mount. We're at the beginning, often called the Beatitudes. And last week we just started the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus turns everything upside down about who the God-blessed person is and what their blessings are. Last week... We heard him say that when you're spiritually destitute and have nothing to offer God but your sin, then it is that you're blessed. When you know that you are spiritually bankrupt before him and your only plea is, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, then you're blessed. When you're, when you're needy and you're helpless, then he gives everything to you. Then the kingdom of heaven belongs to you who are poor in spirit. Then you receive his gift. Not so, we said, those who are rich in spirit, by contrast. Those who are self-confident, self-righteous, self-reliant, spiritually speaking. They think they have all they need in themselves. Or they think whatever they need from God, they deserve. And so they get nothing. They don't ask for anything. And if they ask, they ask that they would get justice what they deserve but it is the appeal for mercy that is answered and this is the blessed person and so it is the best kind of blessing we said to know that apart from jesus we are as jesus says in revelation 3 spiritually speaking that we are wretched pitiable poor blind and naked without him because then in him we find that he pities us He clothes us. He gives us sight. He makes us rich with the grace of God. So Jesus turns everything upside down. And he does it again in this second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn or happy are the unhappy. Let me invite you to consider that from God's word. We'll read Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 to 4. What does Jesus mean by this? Hear the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. May God write this on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Be our teacher, we pray. Speak to our hearts. Enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Be gracious to us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, says Jesus. That's not how the world thinks. The world says happy are the happy, right? Blessed are those whose lives are large, full, satisfying, filled with delight and joy and ease, right? Blessed are people who have no cares. Blessed are people who have no cares, especially, we might say, about themselves. They're living the dream and happy-go-lucky about the state of their own soul. Sadly, that's what many people think, actually, that Christianity teaches. You ever sing that, and I'm going to sing it, 
you ever sing that little bit of spiritual unreality? Running over, running over, my cup is full and running over. Since the Lord saved me, I'm as happy as can be. My cup is full and running over. That, that's it. <laughs> You're glad to know it's over. Is it really true, though, that here and now we're as happy as can be? I mean, surely we can contemplate, if we, if we can barely imagine it, we can contemplate that heaven is a much happier place than this. And if it's true that we're as happy as we can be now, what about Jesus saying, blessed are those who mourn? Well, there's nothing like the second beatitude to teach you that the gospel does not get you, quote, your best life now with health, wealth, and contentment with self. Now, those who believe the gospel, says Jesus, mourn. What's he saying? Is this really for Christians? And how are we comforted if that's the case? Those are the three big questions I want to ask this day. What's he saying? He's saying Christians are people who mourn their own evil and sin. That's what he's saying. Blessed are people who grieve. It's a strong verb. It, it speaks of intense, piercing sorrow. And he's speaking of spiritual mourning over our sins, not physical mourning even over death, though very proper to mourn that way. But just as poverty of spirit didn't mean financial poverty so those who mourn here is spiritual mourning because we recognize without him apart from him we recognize our moral and spiritual destitution and so we mourn it it grows out of poverty of spirit the second beatitude is tied to the first indeed all eight of them are tied together if you have one you have them all if you don't have one you don't have any And yes, you can grow in them. But Jesus is not saying the God-blessed people are those who always look on the bright side of things. Or who have a stiff upper lip. Or who don't feel sad or always leave church happy. (laughs) It's contrary to thinking God always wants you to feel good about yourself. Even at the cost of ignoring the troubling voice of conscience that troubles you about yourself. It's contrary to the view that says everything's fine because, as one put it, I love to sin and Jesus loves to forgive. And so the best thing to do is, you know, never look back, never doubt yourself, never examine your heart, never frown on your own selfishness. Just keep telling yourself you're forgiven and it's no big deal. If you sin, Jesus, however, is teaching us that those who make much of grace, and we must, he died for sin, must not at the same time make little of sin. We are to mourn over it, not be indifferent to it. The apostle James, I think, has has language that's hard for all of us to hear. When he says in in James chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Now that's not hard to hear. That's a wonderful evangelistic message. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he goes on. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There's a wonderful example of this. And I think among my favorite New Testament Bible stories, you probably know it in Luke chapter 7 about the woman who comes to Jesus. And if you want to turn there, you can, but otherwise just listen in. I want to give you the, the story and the conclusions Jesus draws from it. In Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36, one of the Pharisees, religious leaders, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, the scripture says, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now look, everybody in that city was a sinner. But she was evidently a notorious kind of sinner. Many would argue, and I think properly, that she was a prostitute. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now look, that's her expensive perfume, which if you understand her vocation is a a, a tool of her trade. And standing, it says, behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. She's, uh, She's aware of her unworthiness to be in his presence. She's weeping over her own sin as she beholds a Savior who would be so gracious to tabernacle and dwell with us. And she began, it says, to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So you see the picture of this woman weeping uncontrollably, her tears puddling at the feet of Jesus Blessed are those who mourn. Now, verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, saying to him, (laughs) Jesus answered the thoughts of the man. Knew exactly what he was thinking. Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, isn't that gracious? Simon, before I preach this little sermon to you, do you want to hear it? Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus answering said, Simon, a certain money lender had two debtors. Now, as Jesus is telling this story, you understand that these two debtors are this sinful woman and this religious Pharisee. And Jesus goes on, one debtor owed 500 denarii and another 50. That's something like, we believe a denarii is a a day's wage for a day laborer. Nobody's getting rich on this. You work hard all day, you come home with one. So one guy owes 500 days worth. What's he going to live on to pay that off? And another 50. They are both substantial sums of money, but one is 10 times the amount 
of the other. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Question. Jesus says, now which of them will love him more? So Jesus invites you to do the math, right? Think it through. The one who is forgiven a month and a half work of day labor? Or the one forgiven a year and a half of day labor? Which one will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, kind of a reluctance to acknowledge what's going on here. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You didn't offer to clean my dirty, tired feet. Common courtesy in that culture. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Typical greeting of affection. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many... Are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You understand, Jesus isn't saying she was forgiven a lot because, first, she loved a lot. He's saying she loves him a lot because he forgave her a lot, just as those who love Jesus very little barely, if at all, know. How much they've been forgiven. She was the only one who would own up to the fact of who she was. She was the only one who didn't try to cover it up or act apart or say it's no big deal or or smear religion over the filth of her own soul. She was the only one who felt the weight of the debt of her sin and wept for it and blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And she was comforted. She enjoyed the comfort of release, the comfort of freedom in forgiveness. This is why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into the world. Why did he send the Spirit into the world? The Scripture says to convict, John 16. And when he comes... That is the helper, the comforter, the one I will send. This is Jesus speaking. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It is the work of the Spirit of God to show you Christ and convict you of your sin. And I just ask you, has that happened in your experience? Has the Spirit shown you your heart? A true Christian sees it and grieves it. Because they love their Savior. And they behold a gracious, merciful, saving, holy, good, and just God. 
Of ourselves, says Martin Lloyd-Jones, we say, what is it in me that makes me behave like this? Why am I irritable? Why am I bad-tempered? Why am I, and here I paraphrase, sarcastic and use my wit to tear other people down? Why am I not able to control myself or control my tongue? Why do I harbor unkind, jealous, envious, perverse thoughts about others? Why all these things? Don't you just sometimes see the blackness of your heart and wish you could just fling it away from you? That struggle with sin is good, if that's your struggle. And a sense of grief over you is good. It means there's life in you by the Spirit of God who convicts you of who you really are apart from Christ. And it is, as, some, as one put it, not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors or hypocrites. So the more that you see Christ, the more that you will hate your sin, for nothing is more unlike Christ than sin. And because Jesus hates sin, the more like him you grow, the more you will grow like him to hate sin. And the more you hate sin, the more you will grieve whenever you realize that you have embraced sin. Sin which killed your Savior. Does that describe you? You have a conflict in your heart. You love what you shouldn't love. And you hate what you shouldn't hate. Does that describe you? Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Now the second thing I want you to see, more briefly, is that Christians are people who keep on mourning. Their own evil and sins. Not just people who mourn, but people who keep on mourning. Jesus speaks here of those who not just have mourned in the past, if you have, but he uses a present participle. In other words, he says, blessed are the mourning ones, or those who are still mourning. It's, it's not, though, that we should think, I don't think, That every single moment of your Christian experience, you should be filled with grief and only grief. I mean, there is true joy and freedom and delight and happiness in forgiveness and being released from your sins. And we are to rejoice. The Lord is king. He's raised. He's conquered everything on our behalf. We're to delight in him. There are many emotions that belong to a believer. And they are actually heightened on both ends of the spectrum as you walk with Jesus and are blessed by Jesus. It's not that every single moment is filled with grief, but we should grieve over sin all our lives long and never quit or say, well, that's, that's done. I mean, we don't believe once, contrary to what some people teach, we keep on believing. We don't repent once, We keep on repenting, and we don't mourn once. We keep on mourning. It's the nature of the Christian life to increase in these things, even as we increase in sensitivity of heart to sin. That's a mark of growth 
in grace. In other words, it's the opposite of growing cold, hard-hearted, indifferent to what put our Savior on the cross. Look, is this for Christians? Absolutely. This is the Christian experience in life, and this is what we're to be growing in. You remember the words of the Apostle Paul about his own experience in Romans chapter 7? He, I think, well illustrates it. How did he think about himself? Romans chapter 7, take verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want. That is what I keep on doing. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? You can hear Paul saying, I can hardly take it. I can hardly stand myself anymore. I can hardly bear how frequently I fail my Savior. I'm so tired of me. Are you tired of you? Are you? Sick of you, apart from the grace of Christ at work in you. Because the God-blessed people are those who go on mourning their own sins. And because of that, we need help to do that. And God has given us help. He's given us not only these examples in Scripture of those who mourn, He's also helped us. By reminding us this is not the only emotion and response we have. But he's also helped us by giving us songs to sing about this. I was struck by Psalm 42 and 43 the last couple of weeks we've been reading, which are psalms of despair of ourself. There are other psalms that are even more pointedly about despairing of self on account of our own sin. They're called psalms of lamentation. And arguably there's more lamentation in the 150 psalms than there is even praise of God. We have these songs so that we might have the language to describe our experience. And so because of that, not everything in the church that we sing should be happy and upbeat all the time. Do you have in your playlist of Christian hymnody songs of lamentation? Did you notice the songs that we sang today? I I hope it was kind of obvious, but we opened with Rejoice the Lord is King, right? When he had purged our stains, he took his seat above. Rejoice, right? The keys of death and of hell, they're in Jesus' hands. He's raised from the dead for us. Be happy and rejoice in him. Amen. He triumphed. That's good. He defeated all our enemies. Sin, evil, the devil, and death. That's why at the close of our service, we'll end with all must be well. Because he rules and reigns now for our good. And because one day we'll be with him where he has made all things perfectly well. But between rejoicing and hope, all our hymns were hymns and songs of lamentation. From depths of woe, I raise to thee the voice of lamentation. It's right out of Psalm 130. It's Luther's paraphrase. 
We sing, if thou iniquities dost mark or record, right? Our secret sins and misdeeds dark. Oh, who could stand before you, O Lord? Then we sing, dear refuge of my weary soul. Oh, what gloomy thoughts prevail. I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust. And still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Morning. And after our study, the next song we're going to sing, Come Then, Lord Jesus, Come. One of the stanzas, uh, turn in your bulletin. The whole creation groans and waits to hear that voice that shall restore. This is the last stanza, I apologize. The whole creation groans and waits to hear that voice that shall restore her comeliness, her attractiveness, her beauty, and make her wastes rejoice. Come, Lord, and wipe away the curse, the stain, the sin, the stain, and make this blighted world of ours thine own fair world again. Do you hear that longing and lamentation? These are the songs we sing. Songs of sadness and frustration with self. Lamenting our sins. Longing for mercy. Looking for forgiveness and hoping in the restoration of all things. Is that what goes on in your heart? When you come before God and worship, you do not have to set aside how you are. You bring how you are to the Lord's feet. You do not have to put on a happy face here at Redeemer and act like everything is great all the time and you're good, all is well with you at every moment. I hope you feel the freedom to be honest. You don't have to pretend you're on an emotional high and that there's just joy and only joy and always only joy in Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. One of the best pastors and hymn writers, in uh, my humble opinion, is John Newton. In part because many of his hymns are autobiographical of his own experience and the Christian experience. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? Listen to how he describes, track with it, the inner feelings and thoughts of a true believer. He says this, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. So far, so good. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. Why despair? He goes on. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Right? Instantaneous perfection. (laughs) That's what I thought I'd get. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair design I schemed. Blasted my gourds. <laughs> 17th century, whatever, 18th. 
blasted my gourds and laid me low. He knocked me down. He took me off my high horse. He showed me my own heart, right? I asked the Lord for faith. And he taught me how desperately I need Jesus. I asked the Lord I'd grow in love. And he showed me my sin that he forgives, right? I thought I would just grow up and up and up and up into joy and happiness forever. And he made me see I'm poor and needy. Lord, why is this I trembling cried? Says Newton. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and faith. How? How does causing me to mourn my sin do that? These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and to break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thine all in me. That's why I do it. Do you have any idea what Newton is talking about in your own experience? Are you tired of you? Do you grieve that you have crossed lines you should not have crossed? Do you mourn that you fall short of what you ought to be? Does it trouble you that there remains in you so much that is perverse and worldly? Does it nag at you that you love yourself more than you love Jesus And the people you really love. There are such things as Christian tears, says John Stott. And too few of us ever weep them. Isn't he right? Blessed are the mourning ones. For they shall be comforted. And that's the last thing, the promise. They shall be comforted. They, Jesus is saying, and they only shall be comforted. We said last week that was true with regard to the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. You can't have the kingdom of heaven without poverty of spirit. We said that hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. And yet heaven is full of people who know that they deserve hell. Well, so here in the second beatitude. We might say hell is full of people who are happy-go-lucky about their moral failures. Doesn't raise a caring concern. But heaven is full of people who sorrowed and repented. Psalm 126, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Jesus isn't saying time heals all wounds. Jesus is saying I heal all wounds. I comfort those who mourn. You know that in Isaiah chapter 61, the Messiah says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn. And in Luke 4, Jesus reads those words in the synagogue and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I am he. I comfort my people. With what comforts? Let me close with three. We can think of more. What comforts do we have from him? First, we have the comfort of Christ-likeness. No, I mean, 
One of the comforts is just this, that we who mourn have begun to share the perspective that God himself has concerning ourselves. We've begun to think and feel the way that God thinks about us. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he wasn't sorrowing for his own because he had none. He was sorrowing over ours and had grief on account of us so that he wept over Jerusalem's unbelief and he grieves over our sins. He still hates sin. That doesn't go away because he died for it. He hates it. And our sins, the Bible says, grieve the Holy Spirit of God because God loves us and he wants us to be perfectly like Jesus. And anytime we're not, it's not what we ought to be. And the proper response to that is a a grieving and a mourning. And there is comfort then in knowing that as we groan inwardly, awaiting, we might say, the resurrection and the, and the adoption of the redeemed of God in glory, where there is no groaning, there is comfort then as we experience that because we know that God is working and forming Christ in us. But second, there is the comfort, and this is the easy one, the comfort of forgiveness, right? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or keep a record of my sins, who could stand in your presence? I couldn't. Woe is me, we would say. We saw him rightly. Yet, yet, what? With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So the cross brings a sweet release. By it, God lets us go free from what our sins deserve. There's the comfort of forgiveness The comfort of Christ's likeness. And there is the comfort then of eternal freedom. Those who mourn their sins are promised they will be forever free of them. Paul cried out, O wretched man that I am, who shall rescue me from this body of death? And he immediately answered in Romans 7, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? He takes away our sin. He frees me from the dominion of sin, from the power of sin. And he promises me freedom from the presence of sin. So that, the Bible says, the souls of the righteous are made perfect in heaven where every tear is wiped from our eyes. What troubles you most in this life? Is it you? You will no longer trouble you. There and then, blessed are those who mourn and keep on mourning the evil of their own sin. For they shall be comforted with Christ-likeness and forgiveness and freedom forever. Let's hope in that. Let's pray. Father, you are a patient, generous, kind, merciful Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Teach us who we are and who he is and bless us in him. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.